everyone. Um, my name is Rosie, and um, as Jeff said, I'm just going to start by giving a sort of basic overview of the sort of central concepts uh, in the capability approach. Um, oh, I need to turn my PowerPoint. Sorry. Uh, just to, and also, I'm, I'm aware that the audience is, um, some of you in the audience are definitely very familiar with capabilities, and I know some of you are complete newcomers to it, so um, I hope uh, this will, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to um, pitch this so that it's, it's appropriate for someone who's very new to it, and there will be a time for um, questions, I'll probably pause halfway through if people want to ask any questions. And do feel free to ask anything that comes up. Thanks very much. Um, uh, and the other thing I have to um, apologise for is I'm afraid I have to leave straight after this talk um, because of another meeting that I, I have to go to. So um, uh, I'm sorry that I won't be around for longer and to hear the other presentations. But um, anyway, we will have some time for questions after this. So um, I hope you can all see this okay. The, um, as, as Jeff pointed out, um, the capability approach started to be developed really sort of 30 years ago in the 1970s and 1980s. Um, and this was a time, um, firstly, when, when um, it, uh, we can think about what was sometimes called the crisis of development. Um, with there had been several decades of decolonization um, and um, economic growth globally um, since the middle of the 20th century. But despite this growth, there were still huge inequalities between countries. Um, so some countries had grown much richer, other countries were um, uh, still very poor, and also within countries, um, there were huge um, uh, inequalities in wealth and well-being. Um, so this um, context, uh, which sometimes seems the, the, the crisis of development, the, the kind of um, beneficial outcomes to, to economic growth hadn't necessarily come about. Um, there were still human rights abuses, there were still these huge levels of inequalities. Um, and um, So there were a lot of questions about, well, what is development? And what is the, uh, you know, what, what should we be aiming for if economic growth isn't necessarily the answer? Um, and the capability approach um, was, was developed very much in the, in the context of those questions. And initially was applied mostly in um, developing countries, developing contexts. But as we'll see throughout um, the discussions today, it's also got a lot of implications for, for everybody, really, for different countries. Um, but it also evolved in the context of ongoing philosophical questions about equality and social justice. Um, in particular, the question of how do we define what equality is? Um, there are a lot of knotty questions around that. What is fair? What is fair distribution? Um, and. One of the particular issues that Amartya Sen, who's one of the, the, the key authors, was concerned with was limitations of resource-based approaches. We can think about equality in terms of people having equal amounts of money or equal levels of resources distributed to them. Um, but also there were a lot of issues around fairness with that. Um, and one of his critiques was around a traditional measure of poverty, um, which used to be looking at how many um, people in a country live on under a dollar a day. This is a, a figure that, that traditionally was used a lot, and then it was revised up to under $2 a day, and looking at what proportion of a country um, lives on that. Or looking at per capita GDP, the amount of, um, of income relating to individuals that way. And I wanted to put up, um, this is a slide, you may not be able to see at the back, this is a slide from one of um, Sen's key books called Development is Freedom. And here he was asking us to look at um, the per capita income in different countries. 
Um, and he points out that the per capita income in the United States, for example, is much higher than in countries like India and China. And we can differentiate within different populations in, in the USA. So the per capita income of white, um, white men, this is what this um, graph is showing, is much higher than the um, per capita income of uh, the, the per capita income of um, African American men in the USA. Um, this chart is actually showing um, male survival rates by uh, different groups. So, in terms of income, we know that the incomes in America are higher than the incomes in um, uh, China and India. Uh, and even though the incomes of African American men are lower than the incomes of, Africa, uh, of white men in the USA, um, they are still much higher than the incomes of, um, uh, of, of men in India and China. But when we look at something like survival rates, so um, how long people are able to live for, we see a different picture. So this graph is showing um, the, um, the survival rate, and it's got age along the bottom, um, and then um, the percentage of men surviving according to age. Um, and from this you can see that although the, we know that the um, income uh, of white American men and black American men is higher than that of um, those in China and India, the survival rates for black men in America is much lower, even though their income is higher um, than, than um, the, uh, the men in China and India. And this is even when it's been adjusted for um, different price rates in different countries. So, he used this example as one way of saying it's not enough just to look at levels of resources. You can have populations where their per capita income is much higher than people in other countries, and yet if they're not living as long, if they're actually dying more, then this is a problem in terms of thinking of, um, of development in terms of resources. Just raising people's incomes is not enough if they're dying earlier. <laughs> um, now, there are a lot of different... Um, reasons why there are these um, differences between blacks and whites in America, um, it will be, you know, there are, there, we, we need to look further. We need to look at things like social arrangements, like uh, medical coverage, public health, um, education, law and order, um, racial prejudice. These are all um, reasons of what's going on here. But the main point is that looking at resources isn't enough. It's not enough just to look at income. The other... Um, the other way we, that was um, a quite a dominant way of thinking about what is equality might be to look at people's happiness levels, people's levels of satisfaction. It might be that people have got very different levels of income, very different levels of resources, but if everybody's equally happy, is that okay? Um, there was, um, and so his, um, one of the critiques of that is that, well, it, maybe it is, maybe it is okay, but says okay, but that there's something wrong in terms of justice there. If, um, some people have a lot more than other people. And we know that people can adapt their, um, what we might say, adapt their preferences. They may become accustomed to situations of great deprivation. So you may have these situations where there's great inequalities of wealth, but people say they're equally happy, but um, it might be that people are resigning themselves and not thinking their situation will get better. So he started from this point of saying, well, there are problems with looking at equal amounts of resources. And there's also problems with looking at if people say they're equally happy, that just looking at the mental state of happiness. So what can we look at? Um, and um, yeah, so we can say with equality of what? So this is the, the context in which he developed um, the capability approach. And it's 
We can say that it's a theoretical and evaluative framework for thinking about development. It's, it's a way we can think about what is development and what is equality. So the central um, proposition is that rather than look at resource levels, or rather than looking at whether people are equally happy, we need to look at the extent of freedom people have to achieve the functionings they value. Now that's quite a complex uh, sentence there, so I'm going to sort of go into it and look at the different, um, the different components of it. Sen asked us, rather than to look at um, resources or happiness, that we look at this thing called functionings. Um, and when we talk about functionings, they're basically the sort of beings and doings. So it's, um, this can be um, anything from working, uh, eating, resting, being well-nourished, um, reading. It's, it's things that people either be or do. So rather than looking at resources, he argues that this is a better, um, a better thing to look at. And then we don't just look at functions um, because people are different. We don't want to aim for everybody doing the same functions. Um, we want to look at the, whether they have the freedom to do those functions. Because people are very different. They have different interests. They have different um, values. So they may choose to do different things. But what we're interested in is whether they have the freedom to do something. And in particular, um, the suggestion is that we look at the um, functions that are valuable to people. So it's not just any functions, but it's what's valuable to an individual, what's important to an individual. Um, and then we should look at whether somebody has the freedom to... Um, to achieve a functioning that's important to them. Um, and Sen also, I'll, I'll go into this in a bit more depth later on, but Sen also asked said that we can distinguish between different sorts of functionings. There can be functionings relating to well-being, which are, um, I guess, to do with your own um, standard of living um, and, and well-being, as in um, yeah. being shel having shelter or um, looking after, um, making sure your body is okay. But then we can think about um, things to do with agency. So those might be more related to things that you're particularly interested in or values that you have. There's a famous example that he used to tr both to try and illustrate the importance of looking at capability and the difference between well-being and agency. Sense asked us to think about two starving men. So if you have two men who are starving, they're both, um, uh, but what, they're, they're both not being nourished. They're both not having food. One of the men, however, is starving because it's a famine. He is not able to get the food that his body needs. Um, because there's a famine, there's a shortage of food, um, and no matter what he tries to do, there's no food available um, for, him, for him to eat. But the other man is starving because he is fasting for, um, he's fast, he's, he's fasting for political reasons. He's on a hunger strike. So we have two men, and here they are, um, from a resource-based perspective, they're the same. So existing approaches have, have difficulty in distinguishing. Their, their bodies are not getting food. So um, we can look at it in that sense, that their, their bodies are not getting the food. From a sort of happiness or, well, um, happiness or utility perspective, they're both probably not very happy. It's quite uncomfortable to be starving, um, and it's an uncomfortable state of being. But if we look at capability, then we can see that one has chosen to be starving, and one has not. So one has got the one has has, has had the, the capability to eat, um, but they've chosen not to eat. However, the man who's in the famine situation has not had that capability. He has no choice about it. Um, he also uses this example to 
to, to look at this important of functionings that they value. Um, um, because agency functionings can include things that are may not may actually be detrimental to your own well-being, such as fasting for political reasons. Um, but uh, because it's something that's important to you, we need to take that into account. So the last kind of I think this is the last diagram. On the, this is a this is a diagram that. Um, is um, by someone called Ingrid Robbins, who is a really fantastic author in terms of setting out the sort of basic components of the behaviourability approach. And it's an introductory article that she wrote in 2005. And so she's trying to set out diagrammatically how these different components fit together in the capability approach. An important point to notice is that um, although um, there are limitations to looking at resources, they're not totally out of the picture. Resources are still important to capabilities, but they're not, it's not the same thing. We don't need to measure them in the same way. Um, so um, individuals, the amount that an individual can use a resource will depend on different conversion factors. Um, people have different needs. So in terms of, uh, for example, the amount of food that people need, not everybody needs the same resources in terms of food. Um, younger people, older people, pregnant women might need to have different resource needs. So um, there are different factors that will, will determine how much um, resource an individual needs. Um, so in some ways, if we look at functioning, that's a better way to look at, that actually looks at whether, um, it, it's better to look at functioning as well as the resources in terms of what people are able to do. Um, but because people are different, they might make different choices, so instead we need to look at, at the sphere of capabilities. You can think of this, so it's, it's quite useful to think of this diagram in terms of different examples. So for example, if we're interested in, um, we can think about a bicycle as being a resource, um, but not everybody would necessarily, and an achieved functioning relating to a bicycle might, might be um, cycling across town or, or getting to university. But not everybody would necessarily be able to convert the resource of bicycle into their capability to move around. It might depend on um, personal conversion factors, such as whether you've learned to ride a bike, um, whether you feel confident on the roads, um, whether you have mobility, the kind of mobility that enables you to ride a bike. Um, it might depend on other um, environmental conversion factors, such as whether there's a good enough road to ride a bike. Um, so lots of different things will determine whether or not you're able to convert the resource of a bicycle into the capability to move around. And it's, we can also think, we're not interested in whether everybody rides a bike. If we were interested in, in, in quality around whether people can ride bikes, we're not interested in whether everybody actually does ride a bike, but whether or not um, people have the capability. You might still choose not to ride a bike, you might choose to get the bus. But the concern would be about whether people have or have the capability to use a bike. I just checked, are people still here? It sounds like the mic just went off. Oh, you sorry. Might knocked it. It's not that bit that you bit on your. Um, the red light's not on. Okay, well, while we sort out the mic, um, I'm just going to move this bit. Does anybody have any questions at this stage? Yes. Um, I, was, I was just going to go on and talk about how we can think about this in relation to the two serving men as well. Um, that um, the achieved functioning for both of the men, not being nourished, is the same for both of them. But we can see that um, one of them has, a, has the capability to eat but is choosing not to because the resources are available to them, um, but the other one doesn't. Does anyone want to ask any questions at this stage um, while they get the mics on there? And there's absolutely any question is fine. Um, 
It's weird to think about the starving man as an achievement. How? Because you're saying one has the choice to be starving, but the, the other one doesn't. But how do you see being starved as an achievement for the other one? It's kind of... Yeah, I realise, and so th this is the kind of terminology of the capability. We, we talk about an achieved functioning, something which you are, you, you've sort of completed the functioning. But I, I agree that with this example, it sounds a bit um, unnatural to, to talk about starving as an achievement, but it's, I guess it's a bit more, there's this kind of technical term. Um, good point. Yeah. I think, I'm not quite sure. <coughs> I think that the, it's that you have the, you cherish the, the choice of that you, you choose to start, and this is part of this is an achievement in itself that you decide what you want to do without being pushed by um, family, for example. Yeah, but for the person that is choosing to, to, to start it, it's, it, 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 it's, it's very clear. But for the person that doesn't have the, 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 the choice, the the it's yeah. very hard to understand as an achievement. Obviously, I, I, I mean, I cannot understand, but. Yeah, it's, it's very difficult to look at it in, in, in the same level. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So, so I, I guess that's exactly the point in a way is that one person, um, one of the men made the choice. One of the men had the capability to eat, um, but still chose not to, what we'd say, achieve the functioning or or or, 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 or eat. Um, but the other person didn't. So that's the point of that. Yeah. I think if I understand the capability approach correctly, that the starving is not a functioning, yeah? I mean, a functioning has actually to be something that promotes life in a way. So the choice is not to do something that promotes your well-being. So yeah. it's exactly the opposite of the functioning. It's like you make a choice of not eating yeah. when you're doing it for political reasons. I think I think it's usually um, uh, the functioning is seen as, as being nourished or yes, exactly. mean. Yeah. so um, one person doesn't have that capability to make the choice but the other person is making um, and it's it's an agency decision really to to um, to forego being nourished for other reasons that are valuable to them that's that's the yeah so it's what you're saying then So the, the sorry, I was going to Is that okay? Yeah. Um, so the point is uh, that, that that Sen was making with that with that example is that one man has the capability and the other man doesn't. So the overall argument is that when we think about equality, we don't think about it in terms of resources because. Um, People have very different needs, um, and, and um, according to different contexts in their own. Um, we don't think about it in terms of functionings either. And the starving man example is quite a good example of that because they they have the same functioning of not being nourished. So if we were only looking at functionings, 
it would be quite hard to distinguish between them, but they are in very different situations. Um, therefore, the argument is we need to look at this. So whenever you think about equality, you think about it in this sphere, not there or there. So you need to think about whether people have the capability to achieve the functioning that's valuable to them. So going back to the original question then, the, the man who is starving because of circumstance doesn't reach that point of achievement. So you're not saying that man is in a, a state of achievement by being starving. It's well, actually, the man that chooses it, he reaches that. Um, so they, they, both, they both are in the same state. They both have this um, functioning of not being nourished, I suppose. Or they, or, but one has chosen to do that. So one did have the capability. So this is the same for both men, um, because they're both starving. But one has chosen not to do that. And we have a question here. I just wanted to say, I think the word achievement might be throwing us off course a bit, because we think of an achievement as a positive thing. But in this case, it really is simply the end result. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, the end result for both is the same. But the starving is not the functioning. I think what you're saying is right. The starving is the lack of the functioning. Yeah. Yeah. These are. I mean, yeah, we. This, this, this is not nourishing. It is the functioning. Functioning is a value neutral. Yeah. Yes. It's yeah. a value neutral functioning. It's not taking. A it's position. a state of being, isn't yeah. it? So I would probably function. say you could either talk about starving as the functioning or not being nourished as the functioning. Yeah. So in a way, it doesn't matter. But the point is that they have the same functioning there. However, being, we decide to turn being it. nourished is the actual functioning. Uh, being ill-nourished is the functioning yeah. as well. It's just it's any, neutral, it's neutral, it's neutral free, neutral that's yeah. the point. It's, yeah. The functioning isn't always good. Yeah, it's, it, it's any being we're doing. So, in, I mean, it, it probably doesn't matter exactly what we call it for the purpose of this example. A function can be any kind of being or doing. The point for the example is that they have the same functioning, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so, so now in the glasses, now I'm going I think it, it, it would be uh, probably useful to think of it as uh, a want and a need. So one of them, for, for both of them, it is, uh, it is a need. So freedom, want. One of them is actually uh, uh, wants to, to start. That's a decision, uh, a, a deliberate decision that the person took. And the other, but both of them have, uh, have a need here. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I suppose the... So the need is for them to be nourished well. The want to, to be nourished is, is decided by each of them. So one of them is, is decided for them because there is no resources. Um, uh, but for the other, it is, it is a deliberate decision. Yeah, I, th I think we're getting at here is, is, is the, one of the key points here is that the capability approach foregrounds the freedom to do something. And so we're looking at whether or not somebody has the freedom to do something that's important to them. Um, so that's a kind of a key point in, in it. Yeah. But with two other hands going up, do you want to continue? Yes. I mean, deciding whether somebody has the capability Some people would say that's because there weren't any jobs available, 
Others would say it was because they had chosen not to work and that it was tough, or they'd chosen to work in a low-paid job. Um, and that could become quite political, where you would draw the line between um, agency and circumstance. Yeah, there's a, so there's a, um, you're, what you're doing is, is highlighting there actually how when we apply this to the real world it can become much more complex. What the capability approach does ask us to do, this is a simplified version of the diagram actually, and in, in the wider one it um, asks us to consider the environmental and social and political factors, the context in which this kind of thing might be happening, and all of those things would, would definitely be sort of considerations. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, so we have one more yeah. point, and then I'll, I, I don't want to... Uh, I was just going to answer a simpler example, where maybe um, a positive one, because it's this word achievements that um, a stumbling block for me. Okay, I, I mean, the first example that I mentioned was the bicycle, I guess. Mm -hmm. So you could think about um, the functioning, the resource being a bicycle, and whether or not somebody... Um, the, the chief function we might be interested in would be whether or not you ride from your home to university. So we wouldn't measure, if we're interested in whether a group of people um, have equality, for example, in that, we wouldn't be looking at whether they, only whether they only all have bicycles. We'd also have to ask questions about whether they're able to use the resource of the bicycle. There are both personal factors involved in that to do with your own mobility or whether you can ride a bike and knowledge and so on, but also environmental ones as to whether there's a road, um, whether um, whether the roads are safe, etc. Um, but you still might uh, choose not to exercise that capability. You might choose not to convert your capability to ride a bike into the actual achieved functioning of travelling from home to university by bike. So. Yeah, I, I, I totally understand the point about uh, achievement. If it's a, if it's a, um, for some examples it might sound rather strange, but just, but try and think of it just in terms of those functions. Um, so I, I'm slightly aware of time. I'm just going to see what I have. Uh, there, this is the other. Some of this we've we've possibly covered already. The um, as I said before, ten. Amartya Sen distinguishes between well-being and agency functionings. So the agency functioning, the, the example of the man who chooses not to eat there is quite a good example of an agency functioning that's actually detrimental to his own, own well-being in many ways, but he's um, exercising an, an agency functioning there. Um, so um, uh, there are things that are valuable to the individual um, but may actually go against your own well-being and, and demonstrate that you have... Um, uh, sort of agency and abilities to do what's, what's valuable to you. Um, there are differences, so the two kind of key authors are Amartya Sen and Martha Nussbaum, um, and I think Monica and, and Melanie will go on to talk a bit more about um, uh, some of the more de the, the details of the, their, their approaches, but one of the key things is that Martha Nussbaum says she identifies 10 um, central capabilities that she says everybody in the world needs to have um, for, for, um, for, for there to be um, development and for people to live flourishing lives. Um, and so, so, so I've put some of these here as an example, life, bodily health, bodily integrity, emotions, practical reasons, and so on. Sen takes a different position. He says you can't define what is a valuable capability for people. 
but there needs to be a deliberative process, um, especially if we're talking about groups of people, where people have to um, deliberate and make decisions about what's valuable for them. Um, so, so that's quite a. He, he places much more emphasis on the, on, on um, those processes of deliberation and and, and and choice in what's in deciding what what capabilities are valuable. Um, I also wanted to quickly put something up here about um, the human development, um, the concept of human development, because this very much came out of the capability approach. Um, and um, I guess this, this, this came about as trying to give a more tangible alternative to um, mainstream understandings in economics of what development is. Development is. Um, so as I mentioned before, the, the sort of traditional understandings of what, how developed a country is rest on things like the, um, the GDP and the GDP per capita, so the amount of, sort of economic um, growth and production that goes on. And um, the Human Development uh, Report is a publication that's published every year, and they try to capture different aspects of, um, of, of well-being to give a sort of different picture of what development, um, what things are important. So they have an index called the Human Development Index, which as well as taking into account, um, there's three components to it, a long and healthy life, so they take into account life expectancy, um, knowledge, so they create an education index based on expected years of schooling and um, uh, mean years of schooling. And then the third one does take into account the um, sort of um, income per capita. So they have a more nuanced kind of index that they create, trying to capture these other aspects of, of human experience. Um, and they use this to um, rank the countries. So in the reports, um, they show how if you rank countries according to the um, income per capita, then you get some very rich countries at the top. Um, but if you rank them according to the Human Development Index, taking into account other things that are valuable to individuals like life expectancy, life ex like education, then we can see that, um, for example, while Qatar is highest in terms of income, this is, is the um, figures for 2016, um, actually Norway is um, the highest one in terms of the Human Development Index. Um, um, and you can see also that Australia, while it comes lower down in terms of um, per capita income, it's actually quite high up in terms of the human development. Um, so a big... A big part of the argument about capabilities is really getting us not only to think about what is equality, but what is development. And where the traditional understandings were that it's all to do with growth, it's to do with economic growth, and it's to do with the amount of income that people have. Um, in the capability approach, that's, like, that's kind of turned on its head. So rather than the end being economic growth, resources are an important part of the picture, but they're part of what leads to what we would call human development, which is a much more nuanced and broader understanding of what's important. Um, and the title of Amartya Sen's book that was published in 1999, Development as Freedom, really encapsulates that. He's asking us to think of development in terms of freedom, not just in terms of resources. Um, does anyone else want to... I've, I've, my final slides are to do with... I just have a couple to look at education, but does anyone else want to ask any questions at this stage? Yes. I'm, I'm really interested in what you <coughs> what you said about it. Just correct me if I'm wrong. The picture that seems to be emerging is that in some ways it's a response to what I would call neoliberal Chicago School of Economics view of economics. In a way that has gripped 
perhaps strangled by the notions of development. And I'm looking at um, the uh, International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and the way they have viewed development in countries like Sudan, countries like Sudan. Is that is that right? So it's a it's a it's a dip, it's a different way of looking at it, which yes. seeks to challenge these measures. So it is an, e well, it's, an economic. It, uh, it, it is part part economic and kind of philosophical dilemmas around what is equality and what are we aiming for? What is development? I guess. And inherent in this is it's quite in many ways it's quite a radical redefinition of what development is. And what are we aiming for? We need, it's an argument that we need to look at something other than resources. It's not saying resources are totally out of the equation. They are important. But it's um, a shifting, it's a different perspective of what, what it is that's important and what we're aiming for. Um, and again, the, the, the whole, um, the term human development also is something trying to capture that. With, it's, you know, it's, it's a different perspective on what development is. Yeah. I've heard so far has actually uh, brought me back because I work in different parts of the world and I come from what's been defined as third world countries for many years. And it seems to me that development is not only looked at, as we quite rightly say, from a sort of a monetary aspect, what physical things you have, what income you get, and the lot of income. It seems also come from the spiritual well-being. People feel good about themselves. They feel good about their families and where they live and how they are, as they see it, enjoying life. There is a different perspective from what I would fully identify solely the Western uh, way of looking at things. So development, in essence, does not only mean, as we quite rightly say, the money income that people have and their level, their high standard of living, it seems to me come also from the, um, the family, the, as I said, the spiritual, emotional, social well-being, how they interact within their groups and so on. So, and that aspect, although they don't have a lot of cash in their hands, but they still seem to be happy yeah. and to feel good about that. No, thank you. That's a, that's a helpful contribution. <coughs> One of the things I think that, that relates very much to is, is the essence of what's valuable, what's valuable to the individual and to different communities. Remember that it's not the same as what, whether people are happy or not, because that's, a, that's quite a problematic thing because people can become adapted to certain circumstances. You can become adapted to situations of deprivation and injustice. But looking at what's valuable to the individual, what are the sort of things that are important? That's what the capable approach puts the emphasis on, and whether people have the freedom to achieve those valued functions. So that's that's where it, that's exactly what it's um, trying to do. Um, I think for the last, I have only a few minutes left, so I just want to touch on five minutes. Five minutes. Okay, great. I just want to touch on how some of the ways. So and actually, as um, as uh, some of the comments have, have, have uh, also been emphasising, so that we, it, it's, it's trying to redefine development, and it, it throws into question what we can see as a developed country in many ways. Because if we're defining development in a different way, then you can have very rich countries that actually have very low development, if we think about things in terms of capabilities. Um, so, 
the context that much of this was developed in was for looking at issues around international development um, and in countries which have um, great levels of poverty in the various different ways of measuring that. But um, the theoretical insights uh, and abilities have meant that it's, it's sort of also can be applied to, to um, many different contexts. Um, and what I just want to sort of finish off on is talking about how we can think about what is the advantage of thinking about capabilities in relation to education. Um, and I suppose there's three main points I want to make here, really. Firstly, taking these insights from, from sort of human experience and development overall, um, one thing is that it can help us to think around this issue, what is the aim of education? What are we aiming for? When we, we, you know, nobody disagrees with there being more education, but what's the actual point? What's the aim of it? What goals should be guiding education reform? Um, and I'm sure, as many of you are aware, economic framings are very dominant in this. Um, uh, you know, the, many government, most government policies usually are concerned with how uh, education relates to the economic growth of the country. Um, arguments are usually often made in terms of how uh, getting an education can improve the uh, opportunities for an individual to get a job and into the labour market or increase your earnings and so on. But if we take these insights from the capability approach and apply them, it gives us a different perspective, really, because rather than education being for economic growth, for raising your income, we need to think about it in terms of how does it help an individual expand their capabilities. It may relate to earning and getting a job, but it may relate to other things that are valuable to the individual. Um, so again, we see this sort of reversal of the ends and means, rather than education, from a capabilities perspective. I'd argue that rather than education being means to economic growth and personal increasing personal income, resources are important, but we need to think about how um, resources help to <coughs> increase people's capabilities. And so that should be the end. That's what we're aiming for, increasing people's capabilities. Um, and some of the work... Um, one of the examples I wanted to, to um, talk about was, was um, the um, example of girls' education and international development. Girls' education is, is often, in, in the dominant discourses around international development, uh, argued as uh, sort of the key to economic growth, and you educate a woman, and you educate a nation, and um, uh, it's, you know, you, you're, it, it's, it's an important way to, um, I guess, make sure that children have more education and that they can enter the labour market, etc. And also for women's, um, seen as for empowering women through entering the labour market. But a capabilities lens on girls' education might not just be looking at whether it enables women to enter the labour market or enables them to become more efficient mothers, um, but looking at what's important to um, girls and women themselves and whether um, the education they receive actually does increase their capabilities in a wide range of things, or whether it's more likely to um, uh, keep them in particular roles in the economy or in society. So we, we if, we're if we're interested in inequalities between groups, we can look at whether the education enables them to do the things that are important to them, or um, or whether it's it, it doesn't. Um, so one question is that what's the aim of education? What what should we be, what, what goals should um, guide education reform? Secondly, it's the question of what is fairness and equality in education. Um, there are um, again, it's it, it's it, the, it's very um, common to think about talking about equality in terms of equal inputs to education, um, making sure that schools have equal number of resources, 
um, that children have the same amount of money spent on them uh, and so on, or um, the teachers have the same amount of training. Um, or in terms of outcomes, what are the uh, numbers of children passing through school achieving particular exams or getting particular jobs? Um, but again, I would argue that, that looking at education um, in terms of equality of capabilities, and I would say that we probably can look at in terms of equality of capability to participate in education, but also equalities in terms of how it relates to capabilities in wider life as well. Um, so again, it's a, if we're thinking about education equality, this is a different way of looking at it, not just in terms of resources or outcomes, but in terms of how it relates to an individual's capabilities. Um, and then finally, just the question of values. What values should be um, embedded in education systems? Um, which is um, a, you know, a, a topic which is much debated. From a capabilities perspective, it would firstly ask us to think about how they relate to um, what's valuable to the individual and how uh, education can increase someone's capabilities um, around valuable functionings. But we can also think collectively of this. If we're thinking about how to expand the capabilities of the population overall, and what kind of values are conducive to that? We can think about um, values around democratic participation and deliberation, for example. From a capabilities perspective, that's very crucial that those are there in, in educational processes, that people develop those capabilities as well. Um, and I just, there's a, um, there are, of course, many challenges as well. Um, so uh, the question of how you can actually measure capabilities um, and what's valuable to an individual um, is something which a lot of researchers um, are, are, you know, have deliberated over. Um, and also how we capture the issue of what people really value um, in term, and, and whether or not they've adapted their preferences. They've, you know, what, getting to the nitty-gritty of what people really value is a tricky issue as well. And also when we're talking about young people and children in education, um, you know, a, a child might say that it's very valuable for them to stay at home and watch television rather than go to school. Um, but you know, we, that's not necessarily a good situation. So um, there, are, there are things to work through in terms of um, the freedom to achieve particular functions when we're talking about um, young people and children. Um, I want to wrap up um, so we have some time for questions. This slide, I'll, I'll make these slides available after. So this is a sort of overview slide of the different fields of work that people have um, pursued in applying capabilities to education. It's a relatively, I mean, it, it's work has been going on this sort of basically for the last 15 years or so. So it, in some ways, it's a relatively new field, but it's, it's definitely a very dynamic one. Um, yeah, so just to sum up, um, there are a number of, theoretical and practical challenges about, about um, <coughs> applying the capability approach, particularly in education. But um, there's definitely advantages in what it can offer for us thinking around certain social justice issues in education, um, particularly in terms of the justification for education and in some ways how we define education itself. In the same way that we sort of redefine what development is, can we redefine what education is as something which expands people's capabilities? And then secondly, this question of what is equality in education, if we're concerned with social justice in education and equality, then capabilities offers something of a way to think about equality while also taking into account people's differences and different interests. Um, and I just put on the slide here a couple of talks. Melanie's actually um, going to be talking tomorrow as well at the Institute of Education, if anyone's interested. Please do feel very welcome to come along. 
Um, and then we have Amartya Sen, who's one of the key authors of the Capability Approach, is coming to talk at the Institute of Education um, next week, actually, on Thursday. There was, it's nearly booked up, but there are still some places, so um, uh, I can make the website a bit. If you look at the Institute of Education, Centre for Education and International Development, um, there are links to how to get to that talk. Uh, and then we do run um, seminars on capabilities in education at the Institute of Education where I'm based, so um, please do email me if you'd like to sign up. Um, we've now got some time for questions. So oh, no, I don't think we have some. We don't have No, because we've got to go on to the next Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> for five minutes, we're oh, sorry, I um, thank you very much for your questions so far. Um, and I'm sorry that I have to, I have to cut off there. Um, but um, yeah, oh. I think you enjoyed the rest of the day. Thank you. Yeah.